coffee houses have served as spaces for political conversation for centuries. Over the past few decades, globalization has seeped into every aspect of our lives. Coffee has been no exception. The rise and spread of brand name multinational giants have turned coffee house culture into a box store experience. But there's still a place for radical thinking. The global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down, and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? There may be positives, an eventual move away from our dependence on fossil fuels, a step back from the worst excesses of international interventionism, or potentially a more equitable redistribution of wealth and power within our societies. But we're already witnessing the dark side. Xenophobia and racism are on the rise. So too are challenges to the basic rights of numerous minority groups. And democracy itself may well be imperiled. Join Globalization Cafe as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives. Because the political conversation matters. Hi, I'm Philip Leachno. And I'm Mai Ngo. Welcome to our very first episode of a brand new podcast series about global issues that affect our everyday lives. In the wake of World War II, the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights recognised the inherent dignity and the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family. But the reality has never quite lived up to the ideal. When we look at the world around us, we still see indignity, inequality and war, not to mention a slew of burgeoning crises. So what do human rights actually mean? In Canada, for example, we have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that's supposed to protect all Canadian citizens. But is this true? We see evidence of systematic oppression that's been going on on a daily basis for centuries. And globally, we see some of the world's most well-established democracies using new technology to infringe on the rights of others in the name of national security. So what are human rights and who are they really for? To discuss this issue, we're joined today by Professor John Packer, Director of the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa. I spoke to Professor Packer in his office. We began by discussing the origins of human rights. So I would say that there are uh, at least two or three starting points for human rights. One is conceptual, one is historical, and one is, I would say, an imperative of our natural state. The historical argument is that the what we call human rights, the expressed articulation of them, has roots really uh, from about 17th century. And really the competition between um, over control of uh, space and resources and so forth between uh, particular groups and specifically uh, religious and political control uh, where it was decided that uh, really the concept of uh, uh, sovereign equality that it was necessary to make certain accommodations between competitors. So this is a European competition. And, uh, and so in the Peace of Westphalia, uh, there was the first accommodation of minorities, specifically religious minorities. And this was the idea that the group itself had some kind of legitimacy around their self-definition of their belief system. And that that 
could not be simply dictated by the king or the prince. But the acknowledgement that this element of freedom and, uh, and tolerance and respect that was inherent to the community self-defining, that is a, a historical uh, starting point of what now you can draw a line of that in terms of human rights. That coincided uh, with enlightenment. So philosophically, again, the contemporary articulation of human rights has a, a European enlightenment origin. Uh, and these ideas about uh, the individual, the individual in relationship to community, in relation to state, uh, also have uh, are one of the sources because they place limits to activities such as unlimited um, uh, use of force, so freedom from torture, or the end of slavery. And there were a number of similar things which were really uh, supplemented by philosophical arguments about uh, who are we, who am I, and relationships. And then the third, as I mentioned, is this idea more broadly, and I would say this is much more universal, because you can certainly trace these ideas to the South China Sea, to Africa and elsewhere, is a basic idea of reciprocity, the limits on each of us in a limited world, which we share. In order to simply survive, we had to adopt regimes of control that place limits, and there had to be some degree, some sense of compulsion uh, upon each of us, uh, which, is, um, which is really reciprocity. Those then took a lot of development over the next two, three hundred years to get to what we call human rights today, most specifically articulated in the Charter of the United Nations and in the United Nations system and in the regional systems. Okay, so can you tell us then, is, is the notion of human rights still relevant in the 21st century? Well, it's not only still relevant, it's more relevant. So this, in, in evolutionary terms, the notion uh, has uh, developed both um, in a um, mathematical sense of a multiplication or a diffusion both of its content, so from a very few rights and freedoms, such as freedom of belief and, and thought and so forth, uh, we now have, by some estimates, you know, people count, at least in terms of internationally articulated uh, corpus of human rights and, and freedoms, uh, hundreds, 400 is a number often used of uh, different rights and freedoms, right to health, uh, you know, freedom of association, uh, not, not to talk about very specific articulated rights and freedoms. Uh, so they're definitely in the hundreds, if not many more than that. So numerically, the dissemination of them in terms of not only the inclusiveness, by the way, what counts as being human from, you know, property-owning white men uh, or, and so, or the citizen and so forth, but nonetheless, the hoops or the circles of inclusion and extension of rights have been expanded, both in, in uh, kinds of rights. So now we talk about different uh, categories of rights but also different categories of beneficiaries of rights. So vulnerable groups, minorities, indigenous peoples, and so forth and so on. So there's been a kind of constant elaboration of the normative framework in terms of norms and standards and beneficiaries and, uh, and a diffusion or dissemination geographically inclusively of the whole world, including uh, some differentiated understandings of these by region or, or other bases. Uh, and I would say as we live in a more uh, complex, interdependent world, we need these shared references. And so I think they have added uh, pertinence or relevance or salience. For a lot of us, we're familiar that we have human rights. Very rarely do we know what that actually means in any tangible sense. And we see that, that there seems to be gradual encroachment on these rights all the time, like the use of drone strikes and the denial of due process of law. In this practical sense, 
you know, what what is the point of having human rights if 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 the president of the United States can just bomb you anyway? So the point of human rights is the same point that it was at its origin. Uh, it's a different origins, and uh, are perhaps best expressed in uh, by reference to two. Uh, common and universally invoked metaphors for human rights. And, and the one is the shield. And the shield of human rights is supposed to be a defense of uh, the vulnerable against abuse of power uh, or against force or imposition. The second metaphor is the idea of the flame and that human rights not only is there to protect but is to empower because the, the fundamental norm is one of uh, dignity. So, and the idea of full and equal lives and dignity and freedom and rights. So um, if that's true, it's not sufficient that we are merely protected. We must also be empowered. It's not just that human rights as a notion has had a universal resonance and is a lexicon now and an analytical framework by which we look at things, but it's actual content, the things we invoke as human rights, both as particular subjects, but also the issues is expanded. So we more and more see problems that we didn't see in the past as now human rights problems. In terms of uh, war on terror, you know, it's not like terror was invented in the human rights. Uh, terror has thousands of years of history too, uh, and the use of force and the abuse of power are part of our species <laughs> condition. And uh, so human rights um, uh, remain pertinent. But they are now in higher relief insofar as human rights have been successful. People now see injustices, abuses, and so forth through a human rights lens. Now, what they therefore observe is, first of all, the very notion of a violation implies that there's a standard of performance which is breached. So that the kind of allegation is only permissible by the acceptance of the norm in the first place. Otherwise, it's just ordinary conduct, particularly post 9-11 is um, not only that gap in wide high relief, but a seemingly widening gap. And I think that's what many people are reacting to. They're saying, actually, we actually already share this normative framework. We can talk about it. And we're seeing not only violations, but impunity associated with that and a widening uh, scope of it. So that's disconcerting. So human rights is the language. They give us the ability to describe what's happening to us. And without that language, we'd simply have to endure it. Or, or we would uh, describe in other terms as merely power relations. Mm -hmm. And is that adequate in terms of conclusions we would want to draw or organizational implications and so forth? So human rights is helpful to us. It's helpful to us in at least three ways. The first is it provides us something against which we can judge what we see and experience and of what ought to be a little bit ideal. And then, uh, so world free from torture, even though we know that's probably never perfectly to be realized. The second is it provides us an analytical framework of how we engage with problems so we can actually determine what's not only wrong, but kind of the factors, responsibilities, resource implications, so forth. This is very helpful for us to do a conflict analysis or other situational analysis, a justice analysis through a human rights lens. And the third is, it offers us a set of remedies or relief for that. It actually says, well, not only what should be done, but what could and may be done in practical terms. So not only is discrimination in the sense of arbitrary uh, treatment you know, wrong, normatively 
and analytically we can look at a, a set of treatments and, and draw that conclusion, but it actually tells us, well, what, what could we do? Not only not to discriminate, but maybe to create conditions of level playing field or whatever. Can you tell us about your experiences as a professor and a practitioner and how does all this theory and practice meet? So first of all, a lot of the violence is generated clearly by systematic or systemic violations of human rights. We can see that. So uh, policies and practices of exclusion, exploitation, suppression, repression, or oppression generate violent reaction. Therefore, human rights are relevant at that point. But they also help us make the transitional steps. They tell us something about accountability, resource allocations, institution building, and so forth. And they tell us a lot about what kinds of arrangements of society, government, and so forth would be required distribution of resources, uh, full and effective equality of opportunity and outcomes are also informed by, if not required, pursuant to human rights. Can you give us a, a practical example? Yeah, sure. So we'd have to start to talk about anything concrete, land disputes, identity issues, language use, religious uh, disputes, uh, schooling. I mean, a lot of a lot of conflicts actually arise out of these recurrent issues, competition for resources, uh, control over uh, education, and so forth. And a lot, there are a lot of human rights relevant to all of those things. You've said on previous occasions that the fact that there are violations of international law doesn't mean that international law is, is not important. Just as, as there are violations of common law or statute law, it doesn't mean that they're not important. But... As, we, uh, as we've seen with the bombing of hospitals and other violations, if the world's leading advocates of human rights, for instance, the United States and Canada and the UK, are, are openly violating human rights, doesn't that bring it into question? Isn't that a bit like uh, if the police officer goes around murdering people? Yeah, so that this is an absolutely uh, universal uh, characteristic of, um, I would say, any norms and law in particular, in so far as it is to be compelling, um, those who are subject to it, um, the law or the standards uh, always um, depend in a high degree on their willingness, their conformity uh, on, on the basis of some volunt volunteerism. And particularly if we talk about things like human rights, which are based on um, uh, notions of equality and uh, um, and, and that their fairness, um, the idea that there would be some who would be uh, clearly not conforming and using their positions to escape um, accountability and responsibility uh, undermines uh, was not only inconsistent with the proposition of human rights, but uh, raises naturally doubts on everyone else, not only that that's a fair system, but why should I then conform? Connected to that in terms of the development of human rights, internationally, has always been selectivity. The question about their effective implementation depends on a number of other elements of investment in institutions, about the actual compliance by those states subject to these very norms that they've articulated. And what we've seen is that that process has itself been selective. The United States, for example, would prioritize under Bush Jr., um, support for democratic states and democratization and therefore emphasizing free elections and not paying much attention to inequalities and economic and, and so forth. That's partly been overcome more recently 
by, for example, uh, the Universal Periodic Review at the United Nations saying we're not going to be selective. Now, every single member state, every four years is going to have its whole conduct reviewed and so forth. So we're building practices, uh, mechanisms uh, to overcome that. Nonetheless, the real political attachment of various states um, in, and not least in the use of force uh, justified by we're doing good, we're freeing these people of heinous regimes and, and dictators, uh, so it's a human rights merited intervention, has been put in, in considerable doubt, has been discredited because it's stark um, unequal uh, application. So, you know, nobody proposes that we're going to militarily intercede intervene in uh, Tibet. Well, you know, what's the difference between Libya and Tibet aside from geographic location, which is important, but one might want to note things like 70% of oil ex imports into Italy come from Libya. Th these kind of investment of Western multinationals, you know, none of which pertains in Tibet and so forth. So what are, who's intervening on whose decision with which effects and, and who gains and who loses? When you do that analysis, then this uh, unequal selective approach really uh, reveals that human rights now has become in those contexts a kind of um, uh, a charade. And, uh, uh, and that's, that's damaging for the entire normative framework because now it means that the very norms we're invoking are themselves subject to abuse so uh, that raises for me three questions, one that have to be addressed in a systems sense. The first is, who decides which human rights merit which kind of interventions? Uh, two, what would be the criteria for that? And three, in terms of the actual means of intervention, whether it's use of force or resource allocation and so forth, is there any normative framework guiding that? We don't have answers to those questions at the moment. And our current global system with the Security Council and so forth doesn't look capable at the moment of answering that. And that, you know, that then raises questions where people start to doubt the whole system. How do you feel about the future of human rights? I suppose specifically in the era of Trump and also more broadly. Well, so I have often been cautioning those in the so-called human rights movement, I would say movements or communities, because it's definitely not unified. Uh, but those people are well disposed to human rights. Uh, first of all, not to overstate and sell it, neither in, sometimes it's articulated in semi-religious terms, matters of faith and so forth, but also as a panacea. And I think we need to be attentive always to not just what it brings, but uh, its shortcomings and, and, and so forth. And to think very actively about effectiveness and um, equal Im uh, implementation. I think the faith of those in the category of um, the believers and the proselytizers um, has been shaken uh, in the last 10 or so years by an evident pushback and a resurgence, uh, a diminishment of democracy, a resurgence of, of, um, of nationalism and protectionism and so forth. So there's a lot of things happening here which are causing insecurity and uncertainty. Uh, but I see it a little differently and kind of long, if you take the longer vision of this, um, I think that the very fact that the language of human rights is um, being invoked constantly in all quarters of the world, I mean, not, let's not forget in the same period, 
you had the umbrella movement in uh, Hong Kong. You've got you know amazing dynamic dem democratic discussions um, in places like Taiwan about migration and identity and and so forth. Um, I mean that's to pick two two places in, in Southeast Asia, South Asia, uh, sorry, uh, East and Southeast Asia. And um, uh, but we could really pick anywhere in the world. Uh, the indigenous peoples uh, heavily linked to human rights uh, concepts and language. So uh, I, I actually think that this universal resonance is demonstrating its not only existence, but its value by its even more common invocation. So I think this is a positive thing. The, the second thing is that uh, when we really look at you know, what we've just heard from Trump and others, one does have to reflect on the alternatives. And I think we come up dry. You know, there, there are not, at the moment, a whole lot of alternatives uh, because we know that some that are being invoked were badly, not more than discredited, resulted in, in utter disasters. And, you know, we should act to prevent the repetition of history. What, what, what are you thinking of when you say? Well, protectionism, America first. So, if, of course, if every country follows that, I mean, you are really talking war. I mean, you're talking trade war initially, and then you're talking war. But also the ethno-national-centric uh, approach and the whole paradigms of we-they. I mean, the paradigm, the fundamental paradigm of human rights is universalism. It's we. So uh, I think we know where those other ones lead, and they're not good. So one of the advantages of universalism with respect to human rights is that its basic proposition that we are all born free and equal in dignity and rights, which is Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, is not a statement of sameness in the sense of identical. We're not in identical circumstances. We're not all born with the same physical attributes and so forth, but that we are essentially uh, and equally valid in terms of our humanness. So the interesting thing about the universalism of human rights is that it does not require sameness in the sense of identical treatment and so forth, it actually accommodates very easily tremendous diversity. So freedom of belief and faith actually creates enormous space. We don't have to answer questions of religion or hierarchy and so forth. You know, so we don't have to choose a religion. All religions are good. So that's a very appealing uh, idea. That's, I think, why it resonates universally, because it's not invoking one over the other. It's not hierarchical in that sense. And it's reconcilable with the actual diversity that exists, not just as a theoretical idea, but the actual diversity. We know that there are thousands of religious and philosophical belief systems, and they can all fit into that universal normative framework of human rights. The problem with the alternatives of things like orderism, so orderism is this idea that, that the state's fundamental function uh, or any and humans' fundamental interest is security. Well, the problem with that is um, is that it's it's not accommodating of uh, it, it's uh, it's conflict oriented. My security at the expense of uh, your um, identity or language or access to space and so forth is majoritarianism or power based uh, justification is literally conflict generating. And not only because, because people have different um, needs, interests, and aspirations, uh, but then the only way for anybody to pursue them 
is to not just uh, assert them and advocate them, but is actually to grab, you know, space. So if if I'm subject, if I'm not part of that majority, what do I do? Succumb, commit suicide, or resist? So I think I think you end up with uh, you end up with conflict in the violent sense. Between states, that's even worse, because we're, they're going to use the resources of the state uh, to then project and pursue. So America first, uh, or any state, uh, Zimbabwe first, Im- implies questions for everybody else, well, are we second or third or fifth or twelfth? And and why would we agree to America first or Zimbabwe first? Because I'm Zimbabwe first. So that that's only going to be reconciled by power, by uh, clash. And that's going to be destructive rather than constructive. So um, I think I think that leads in, in almost inextricably to uh, war. And war is one of the, you know, the proposition is that war is the negation of human rights. You're suggesting that this is an opportunity then? Yes. I mean, we can just see it structurally. It's a kind of mathematical equation that's not going to work. But it also doesn't do anything about things which absolutely require cooperation. So America first will not address global environmental problems. Just won't do it. America alone or America first cannot resolve the ozone layer problem. The only way we can do that is, you know, America needs, for instance, China to reduce its coal burning practices. Uh, We need development in Africa to overcome the fossil fuel consumption so that they can leap forward in their economic development that's not fossil fuel dependent. Neither of those problems are answered by America first. Now, human rights, and particularly the evolving notion of human rights to include things like right to a clean environment and so forth, so-called solidarity rights, the third generation of rights, as they're called, are crucial because they are reconcilable and they are also responsive to these actual global challenges. But they're founded on these universal propositions and they require high degrees of cooperation. Now, the question for any individual is, do I lament the risks of the negative or do I place my efforts? It's not just a matter of faith, but my efforts. I think there's good reason to say that placing our efforts in the brighter future that I described is not without justification in history. I mean, I, I take note that it's easier said by someone sitting in a nice office in Ottawa than it is for someone sitting and born and raised in a refugee camp in a, some part of the world. I acknowledge that. But we are talking about species and so forth. So to the extent that we can, um, and, and I guess a certain sense, one's evaluation of the fundamental character of human nature. And I would say that I am buoyed by uh, the shared character of the human nature. Uh, very fundamental ideas of fairness, the capacity of children to recognize um, discriminatory and treatment, what constitutes ridicule and so forth. These seem to be universal phenomena that the human spirit has universally capacities of generosity and uh, empathy um, and creativity. I have seen and I hope, I don't mind saying I hope, uh, that the brighter side uh, ultimately predominates 
And if not, then our discussion is moot. That was Professor John Packard, Director of the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa. Thanks, Phil. Professor Packard left me with a lot to think about. Specifically, I've been thinking a lot about contemporary human rights and its European origins in the Enlightenment era. A few questions come to my mind. What if we emphasized Eastern teachings of reciprocity into human rights? Would that change anything? In today's world, it's striking to me that the same countries that dominated the world in a century of European colonialism remain the most powerful countries on earth, while at the same time, these countries also see themselves as champions of human rights when it's most convenient for them. I think the questions he leaves us with are important to consider. Who decides which human rights merit which kind of interventions? Who's intervening on whose decision with which effects? And who gains and who loses? When we do that kind of analysis, then what we see is the strong and powerful remain powerful and the poor and weak remain so. It's true that at its broadest, the system itself is not functioning properly. But we still need some way of collaborating rather than competing, because competition is really just a race to the bottom. As Professor Packer said, the fundamental paradigm is a we approach. Human rights gives us a common language to understand what's happening to us and that the lives of all human beings are innately valuable. Let's just make sure to ensure that human rights are implemented in such a way that authentically allows for human diversity in all its forms. This podcast was a production of the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa. It was produced by me, Dr. Philip Leach Snow. If you'd like further information or to get in touch, find us on our website at globalizationcafe.com, on Twitter at Cafe Global, or on Facebook, where you'll find updates about forthcoming shows and other research and activities that we're up to.